Welcome to Family Bible Hour, a broadcast of the Sunday morning worship services of North Florida Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Florida. Thank you so much. Will you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17? We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. We're beginning a mini-series based on John chapter 17. We just completed a mini-series titled Facing Your Giant, and that was based on 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now, John 17, the title of the series is Pray For Me, and the title of today's portion of the series is The Prayer of Love. This is going to be an expository look at uh, John chapter 17, and this is the last prayer that Jesus had with all of his disciples before the crucifixion. It is not the last prayer of Jesus. He's still to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he makes the statements on the cross, and some of them are uh, prayers. They are prayers uh, on the cross. But uh, this will be the last prayer that Jesus prays with his disciples. Most scholars say that this was prayed in the upper room before he left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I'm not sure exactly when the timeline would be that he prayed, but it was before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Someone once said that intercession is love at prayer. And in the first five verses of our text, Jesus begins his prayer of love, and he begins it in a way of positioning himself before, excuse me, before the Father. He's going to pray for himself, and he's also going to pray for those disciples who came before him and before us. There is a perfection in the prayer of Jesus, and the reason there's a perfection in the prayer of Jesus is because it's Jesus praying the prayer. If it were you praying the prayer, if I prayed the prayer, I'm sure there'd be some flaws in it, but there are no flaws in the prayer of Jesus any more than there are flaws in the Sermon on the Mount. So here's the prayer, at least the first five verses of it, John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, and to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now... Father, glorify me in your own presence, and the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, Jesus here begins his prayer by seemingly praying for himself, and obviously he was praying for himself. But in praying for himself, Jesus also prays for you, and he prays for me. A prayer for oneself is not necessarily a selfish prayer. In Jesus' case, when he prayed, it was a generous prayer because he prayed that the Father would be glorified through him. And all the glory that comes to God through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is a, a benefit to you and to me. This prayer was a picture of perfection. And let me tell you the first reason. 
It was a picture of perfection because Jesus was, had been, and is the perfect Son. Before the first words of the actual prayer, look at the last words to the disciples before Jesus prayed. In John 16, in verse 33, He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. <clears throat> but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, the Son of God, proclaims ultimate victory. He said, don't worry, I have overcome the world. He proclaims ultimate victory to a room full of disciples who in the next few hours are about to witness the most horrific events of their lives. He says to them, don't worry, don't be afraid. I want you to know I have overcome the world. Now here's what they're going to see. They're going to see soldiers take him away. But they're going to remember that he said, I've overcome the world. They're going to see him beaten with a Roman scourge. But they're going to remember that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. They're going to see him suffer on the cross of Calvary and be put to death. But they'll remember that Jesus said, I've overcome the world. They're going to see Jesus' body put in a grave, but they're going to remember that Jesus said, I have overcome the world. How can it be that all of these bad things are going to happen to Jesus, yet Jesus has overcome the world? Well, you have to remember that Jesus did not come to this earth to live. He came to this earth to die. There's a big difference between the purpose of living and the purpose of dying. I woke up this morning and I purposed to live. I purposed to preach a message to you. In fact, somewhere along the way today, I've already thought about the number of messages that I've preached in my lifetime and, and all of the, the sermons that I've prepared and, and that I've given and the purpose of preaching them. I've already thought about that today. And today when I stood up or got up, my first thought was, preparing to live this day to preach for you. Like many of you, I watched football last night, but like some others, <clears throat> I didn't uh, stay up too much past the beginning of the second half because I purposed to live today and to live in God's house. I purposed to preach a sermon today. And those of you who did stay up till the very end and you're here today, God bless you, and I'm so happy that you're here. <clears throat> but Jesus is much different than most of us. He came to die. His life was just qualifying him for his death. That's the only point of his life. The point of the life of Jesus was to qualify him for his sinless and perfect death on the cross of Calvary. Everything that Jesus has done or will do or can do in your life <clears throat> or in my life is because Jesus overcame the world. After a time of fasting, Jesus was tempted by Satan. This temptation was for the purpose of getting Jesus to fail in his mission to live a sinless life and die a sacrificial death for our sins. But Jesus overcame the world. He didn't give in to that. Jesus, when he died, died a sinless death. He died in that he had never committed one little sin. Now, if I ask some of you <clears throat> to tell me about your sin, you'd say, well, I don't sin much. I don't sin a lot. I wouldn't consider myself a big sinner. 
I'm not the guy that just really is, is rolling in sin, but I don't think anybody here would be bold enough to say, well, I just don't sin. I just don't do it. And if you were bold enough to say that you just don't sin, I've caught you in one of the biggest lies that I've ever caught anybody in <clears throat> because we're all sinners. Jesus, however, lived, navigated a successful and sinless life, and in doing so, he overcame the world. Satan made that attempt to make the God-man just a man and need a redemption himself. However, he was unsuccessful. Sometime you ought to read Matthew chapter 4 and just rejoice in the fact that Jesus rebuffed Satan at every single turn and know that Satan was trying to get Jesus to commit some sort of sin or be vain in himself or do something that was a bit wrong so that his sacrifice for sin could be a sacrifice for his own sin and not pay the sins of the whole world. But Jesus didn't give in. In those moments and in every second of his earthly life, Jesus lived without sin so that he could become the sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, look at this, yet without sin. There are certain temptations that we just can't resist. We just can't. Friday night, I, I uh, was coming to the homecoming, and I told Jan, I said, let's leave early, and we'll run over here. There's a restaurant called Cody's over on Capitol Circle. <clears throat> we'll go to Cody's and get something to eat there. And I'd forgotten how much food Cody's uh, puts on the plate. They serve a lot of food. So those of you who are big eaters, that'd be a good place to go. <clears throat> but, um, but they came, and they took our order, and it wasn't long until... She brought a basket of hot yeast rolls and what they refer to as cinnamon butter. What the Bible refers to as the second death. <clears throat> and they brought that cinnamon butter and those yeast rolls and they set them down there. And I looked at them and I told Jan, I think I'll just have one with my meal. And... <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and put the, the cinnamon butter in it right now to get it melted and ready, but I'm going to wait and have it with my meal. She said, that's a good idea. And so I did. Buttered that thing up. And you know, it just sat there, and there was no other food on the table. I began to think of nothing else except <clears throat> that cinnamon roll, I mean that roll with that cinnamon butter in it. So I said, I think I'll just have the lower half of it. That's the smaller half. <clears throat> so I, I peeled the lower half down, and, and I took a, a bite from the lower half. I think I'll just eat this whole thing. We don't have anything else yet. <clears throat> I couldn't even resist the temptation of a yeast roll for another 10 minutes until the real food got there. Jesus resisted all temptation his entire life. To his disciple, disciples, Jesus gives heart, telling them that they would indeed find trouble in this world, but that he, he single-handedly had overcome the world. Jesus would pray for us because he was the perfect son. Not only is he the perfect son, but he's the powerful son. 
He began his statement of prayer, uh, his prayer with a statement of position. When we pray, we begin with an acknowledgement of who God is and, and who we are and who we're not. We begin our prayers, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, the reason that we begin our prayers that way is because we're taught to pray that way, but also, or some variation of that, it tells us something not only about God, but about ourselves, that He is hallowed. He is holy. We are not. Now, if I have any holiness, the Bible says, be ye holy as He is holy, but if I have any holiness, it's only His. If I have any righteousness, it's only His. I don't have any. You don't have any either. In John 17 and verse 1, again, when Jesus spoke these words, He lifted up His eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. Now, in the first words of the prayer, we see that this is extraordinary. This is a prayer from the Son of God to God the Father. And while there is a trinity, that is the God, the Holy Spirit, uh, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son are all one, there is a distinction in their personality, a distinction in their persons. And we find God the Son praying to God the Father. We see the relationship of the Son and the Father in this. God incarnate, the powerful Son, is praying to God eternal, the powerful Father. The first words from the lips of Jesus reminds us that Jesus came here with a divine appointment. Jesus said, the hour has come. You know what that means, don't you? It's time now. For me to be taken, it's time for me to be crucified. It's time for me to be put to death. It's time for me to go in the grave. It's time for me to take care of that business and announce that it is finished. It's time, Lord, for all of the events that are going to complete the redemption of the lost soul. It's time for it to happen. The time has come. You know, everything that Jesus had done was by divine design and divine appointment. It wasn't accidental. I heard a preacher a long time ago make this statement, and I thought it was a wonderful statement. A little bit funny when I first heard it, but it's a great statement. Here's what he said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? <clears throat> what a great statement that is. Everything about God is by design. Everything about God is by divine appointment. There are no accidental encounters with God. When something really good happen to you and happen in your life, you shouldn't say, boy, I'm a lucky duck. You might think yourself a lucky duck, but I want to tell you something. Everything comes to your life by design and by divine appointment, because God is a God of design and divine appointment. When something bad happened in your life, God didn't take a nap and somehow or another things got off kelter and, and you lost something that you were looking forward to. Everything is by design. So was the, the death of Jesus by design. Now, while the Jews were the ones that, that called out, crucify him, the Jews are not responsible for his death. He came to die. He's responsible for his own death. 
God gave his son to die. Don't ever blame somebody else for the death of Jesus. If you don't know who's really the blame for the death of Jesus, it's our sins. <clears throat> our sins, all of our sins, put Jesus on the cross because we had to have a, a way of redemption, <clears throat> a way to get back to the Father. And so Jesus came to die, and he, he knew when the time was right, and he knew when the time wasn't right. To his mother, he made this statement in John 2, 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. <clears throat> that was at the wedding in Cana. He said, I, my hour is not come. Now, I just told the father, <clears throat> my hour has come. But he told his mother much earlier, my hour is not come. To the worshipers in Galilee in John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. <clears throat> In the temple in John 8 and 20, these words he spake in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't touch him. You, you remember the song, he could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. The reason that he died alone for you and me is because his hour came, not because they had won but it was because he had won. His, his mission and his commission and the work that he was given to do was com uh, culminating at that very time. And we must remember that God has divine appointments in our lives too. We should live by divine appointment. We should look at our lives and see the divine appointments that God gives to us in and through our lives. Here's what 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, let me tell you what that'll help you to do. That'll help you to not live bitter at life. That'll help you to not live bitter at God. Has everything worked out just exactly the way that you thought it was going to? Has everything worked out just exactly the way that you had planned for it to? Is everything just like you wanted it and You've lived such a charmed life that, that there's never been one time that you were the least bit uh, put off because things didn't work the way that you had hoped and the way that you had planned. You say, well, no, I've, we've all <clears throat> had disappointments. I've got a disappointment right now. There's something that I want that didn't happen. Well, the Bible says in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Oh, wait just a minute. You mean I should give thanks for the heartbreak? Oh, I don't think the heartbreak feels good, but I think we should understand that a divine God who knows everything and can do all things can work through our heartbreak and can work through our difficult times. The thing that we should understand about the powerful Son of God is that He lived and walked and died and rose again by divine appointment and that all things work together for those that uh, love the Lord to those who are the called according to His purpose. That's you and me. We have divine appointments in our lives as well. We ought to live them. We ought to appreciate them. Not only was Jesus facing His divine appointment, but He was doing so from divine power. Think about these words from verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Let that sink in just a minute. I have known and know some people that when their prayer 
they pray for me, it means something. It means that something is going to happen. Now think about the powerful prayer of Jesus who has authority over all flesh. In fact, <clears throat> this power is greater than that. You heard me quote this earlier in the baptistry from Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you imagine someone like that praying for you. <clears throat> someone who has all authority on heaven and on earth. You know, sometimes we ask people certain things and there's no purpose in our asking. If, if I were to ask my friend uh, Tom Sabula here, if I, if I were to say to Tom, Tom, I wonder if I can get fried chicken for supper. I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if I could get fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy. I wonder if I could get some green peas. I wonder if I could, wonder if I could get some, some cornbread made. I just wonder. You'd look at me and you'd say, why are you asking me? <clears throat> I can't even get that at my house. Why are you asking me? <clears throat> I could go and <clears throat> I could ask someone else. I could ask Brother Steve Davis and Brother Steve would say the same thing. I don't know. <clears throat> but if I went to, to Jan over here and I said, you know, I was just wondering if I could get this and this and this for supper. I'm asking the person who has the power to make it happen. I'm asking the person who has the power to, to do something about what I want done. That's the beautiful thing about God and his prayer is that he has divine power. This powerful son lived by divine appointment and he prayed and lived by divine power and it was all for divine glory. Verse 1 again, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. As a father of three sons, let me tell you, and this would be applicable for girls as well. And by the way, I announced last Sunday that Paul and Lindsay are going to have a baby on May the 5th, and I already know that most of you want me to have a little girl, us to have a little girl in our family so we can experience what a little girl is about, that we, there's three sons and now there's two grandsons, and we need a little girl, and I appreciate that. And it could happen. I honestly don't, I mean, I honestly don't, but, but somehow you, you think that I'm going to freak out if a little girl comes to our family. I was raised with six sisters. <clears throat> I've been freaked out all of my life. <clears throat> no big thing. Back to the story. <clears throat> As the father of three sons, I want to tell you there's a mutual understanding of honor and glory. Those things that are honoring to my sons are honoring to me. And Hopefully those things that are honoring to me are honoring to my sons. There's a mutual glory between us, if you will. There is a, a model for this, and the model is God the Father and God the Son. We learn of His 
this human reciprocity of honor from the divine glory that the Son gave to the Father and the Father gave to the Son. They shared in glory. The prayer of love for you and me came from the Son of God who was perfect and powerful. And he was also the productive Son. The next two verses are very interesting to me. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know that, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now this is something of a status report from Jesus. Jesus said, all right, I'm going to give you, Father, a status update as if the Father needed one. They were one. They, the Father knew everything. But he was praying. He was praying a sincere prayer, but he had these disciples in the room. And these disciples needed to hear this prayer, and so did that we need to hear this prayer. So he reviews the work to be done and reports that uh, it is all finished. I want you to take a look at a couple of things. First of all, take a look at the assignment. What was the assignment? Well, the assignment was to make the, the assignment of Jesus was to make a way whereby the fellowship that was broken in the Garden of Eden could be restored. Adam and Eve were created for perfect fellowship with God. They broke the fellowship when they disobeyed God. And it was the assignment of Jesus Christ, the Son, to make a way to to reunite and make perfect that relationship. Through Jesus Christ, the opportunity for a relationship is restored. However, if you reject the Son, there is no relationship to the Father. None. 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 How many of you have married children? Would you raise your hand? You have children who are married. All right. I'll give the illustration. You've heard me give it before. I have three sons. My three sons have a relationship to me. I've already said we're glorified in each other, so to speak. Now, when one of their wives became engaged to them, I had already learned to love those girls. But when they became engaged to them, it was as if there was a, an opportunity now to have a relationship with them. I mean, they had dated a lot of girls. Girls have dated a lot of guys. But there was no opportunity for a relationship until there was the possibility of a commitment. And when that commitment came, (laughs) and my son's girlfriend became his fiance and then became his wife, then there was a relationship so that the one that I was going to love anyway, now I have a relationship with that one. What if the relationship is broken? What if, the relation, what if there's divorce or, or what, <clears throat> what happens then? You, you don't stop loving the one, but you no longer have a relationship. Here's what I love about the relationship that we have with God the Father 
through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that neither height nor depth nor famine nor persecution or sword or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I received Jesus Christ as my Savior at eight years old, I entered into a relationship with the Father through the Son. And now when God the Father looks at me, He looks at me as one that He has always loved, but now He has this relationship with me, and so He favors me because I favor His Son. That ought to turn your mule loose in the corn crib. If you know Jesus Christ as yourself, good news, as your Savior, good news, you are related. You're related to the Father. So the relationship to the Father is vital through Jesus Christ. Jesus came to earth knowing that his assignment was to live a sinless life and to die an unjust death for our good and for the Father's glory. And he accomplished that. There was an accomplishment of the assignment. Jesus goes on to say that he has accomplished the work that he was given to do. In the prayer, Jesus acknowledges six things the Father gave for him, which he became in the whole of this prayer. In verse 2, he acknowledges the authority. That is, that God had given him the authority and that he had become a, been a good steward of the authority. In verse 4, the work that he had been given to do. The, the son acknowledged it. In verses 6, 9, and 24, verses that we'll come to, he acknowledged that the Father gave the believers to him. We're a gift of the Father to, to Jesus. In verse 5 and 24, the glory, and that that's, this glory was a mutual glory, one given to the Father and in return given to the Son. Verse 8 will say that the words of Jesus, the words of God, were a gift to him. And then the name in verse 11 and 12, the name that Jesus carried was a gift to him. All of these things were given to Jesus as a, to be steward of it while he walked on this earth for 33 years. In every one of these, Jesus was the perfect steward of his Father's bestowment. He never sullied the name of God. He never betrayed the word of God. He never tried to claim glory from God that God had not given to him. He never, he never, uh, varied from the work of God. We have salvation because Jesus was faithful in every aspect of the assignment the Father had given to him in his mission on this earth to provide salvation for all who would receive it. Jesus is interceding for you and me today and praying his love for us. Well, we have seen Jesus today. We've seen him as the perfect and the powerful and the productive Son of God. Let me close by showing you Jesus the petitioning Son. He's praying. He's praying. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me 
in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus was ready to go home. I talked to my brother yesterday. My brother's wife passed away five months ago. And then about six weeks afterward, her sister passed away. And then over the weekend, another of her sisters passed away. They were all ready to go. They were all prepared to leave. Like the famous Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, Jesus was a sojourner on this earth. He didn't come to stay. He came to die and to leave. The only reason that he came was to save sinners like you and me. Now he'll pray for us as he goes to Calvary to become the sacrifice for our sins. He's going to pray for us. Jesus saw what was coming. And as he was there in that upper room and he was praying this this prayer that he was praying now for himself, but it was for you and me. As he prayed this prayer, he saw the coming of the cross. Jesus saw the beating of the Roman whip with the metal attached to the ends that would rip the skin from his very back. He saw that as he prayed. That wasn't a surprise to him. He saw that it was coming. As he prayed, Jesus saw that he was beaten beyond recognition and could barely carry on that wooden cross to die on. Jesus saw that. Jesus saw himself falling beneath the load. That night before, he saw the same blood that would run down his arms and drip off his elbows as the the nails were driven through his hands on the cross of Calvary. He saw that. He could see it. The night before, he saw the same blood dripping off his toes and, and down to the foot of the cross where the nails had been driven into his feet. He saw that. As he was praying for you and me, Jesus could see all of that the night before. He saw that same blood as a crown of thorns was placed on his head, and that same blood ran down his forehead into his eyes and and into the corners of his mouth and and down onto his eyelashes, and, and it blurred his vision. Jesus saw all of that. You say, well, it was just like seeing something playing off on a screen just in his peripheral vision. Oh, no, it was front and center. Jesus saw it clearly. Yet he prayed. He said, Father, I'm happy to tell you that I've, I've been able to finish this course. He tells to the disciples, look, I've overcome the world. You don't have to worry about overcoming the world. I have overcome the world. The blood that would have blurred your vision or mine, but now it was the blood of Jesus that was being that was running down in his eyes the night before he saw the blood of salvation he saw the blood of salvation to whosoever will he said i see this tonight i'm praying i see it i know i know what's coming i'll tell you what else he saw he saw the defeat of satan that night he could see it 
He longed to say the words that he would soon say on the cross of Calvary. And I don't believe they're words of defeat. I believe they're words of victory when he said, it is finished. He saw it. He said, I see it. I can see it right now. I think the night before as he was praying, he could see the layout and the plans of the home to be built for you and me. Harry, you built homes for much of your life. I believe when Jesus was praying that night and knowing all the other things that was coming, that this omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing God saw the plans. This is where Harry's going to live. This is Andrew's place. He saw it. Jesus saw it that night. And petitioning, the petitioning son through all of this scenario saw it and he still stayed to pray. When we need prayer, we ask people to pray for us who can pray. I've said this many, many times from this pulpit over the almost 22 years that I've been here. Early on in my ministry, there was a little lady that I asked to pray for me, a little Pentecostal lady. She wasn't big as a minute. I don't even know that she weighed 90 pounds, probably 80, maybe 85, maybe. She's Aubrey Mayo's mother. And I went to visit her one time with Aubrey. And we sat in her little sitting room in the house where Aubrey grew up. And I said to her, Mrs. Mayo, would you pray for me? I need somebody like you to pray for me every day. And she said, I will, Brother Ray. I'll pray for you. I felt so honored when she called me Brother Ray. And she said, I will pray for you. And she did. She prayed for me until as long as she was able to be conscious to pray, she prayed for me. And I wanted somebody like her praying for me. Here's the beautiful thing about John chapter 17 is that it's Jesus praying for us. Can you think of it? Can you imagine it? Some people pray out of obligation. Others pray to intercede from the heart of love. Jesus prayed for you and me, and he prayed from the position of the perfect and the powerful Son of God. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When God leads us here or there to speak to this one or to another, to give this rather than that and to result in one outcome versus another, we have to be thinking maybe Jesus is praying again. It may be that Jesus is praying again and the answer to the prayer is to move us here instead of there. 
It may be that the delay is not a delay at all. The delay is a protection from what might happen if we didn't delay. Recently, a um, couple of uh, two or three really good staff members from our church moved on to other places, and and um, I love them and and miss them and will miss them. But I had somebody to say to me, um, and this is a very normal thing for people to say. Well, what are you going to do? Or what are we going to do? That kind of a thing. And my answer to that is, is a very simple answer. With every problem, God has given us an opportunity. We don't get backed into corners by God with no place to turn. When we think that we're backed into a corner by, and I don't feel backed into a corner, don't get me wrong, but, but when we feel backed into a corner and we think, ah, I, don't, I don't have any place to turn, you're failing to see a direction. Chances are, by divine appointment, you're in that place. And Jesus has been praying for you again. And just like his life was lived by divine appointment, you have come to that divine place in your life. And the answer is to look at him and to say, okay, Lord, I'm looking to you. Show me your answer. You've been listening to the Family Bible Hour a broadcast ministry of North Florida Baptist Church in Tallahassee, Florida, with your speaker, Dr. Randy Ray. You can visit us at North Florida Baptist Church, 3000 North Meridian Road, Tallahassee, Florida, 32312. Visit us online at nflchurch.com. Dr. Ray invites you to join him next week for the Family Bible Hour.